0: The scripture reading this afternoon or this morning rather is from Isaiah chapter 58. When I preach, I'll be preaching just on the last two verses of the chapter. But as I read through the entire chapter, I want you to pay careful attention to the references to to our delight because those are going to help us to understand what the Lord has for us in those last two verses. Hear the word of the Lord. Cry aloud, spare not, lift up your voice like a trumpet. Tell my people their transgression and the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways. As a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the ordinance of their God, they ask of me the ordinances of justice. They take delight In approaching God. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen? Why have we afflicted our souls and you take no notice? In fact, in the day of your fast you find pleasure and exploit all your laborers. Indeed, you fast for strife and debate and to strike with the fist of wickedness. You will not fast as you do this day to make your voice heard on high. Is it a fast that I have chosen? A day for a man to afflict his soul? Is it to bow down his head like a bulrush and to spread out sackcloth and ashes? Would you call this a fast and an acceptable day to Yahweh? Is not this The fast that I have chosen? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free, and that you break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, and that you bring to your house the poor who are cast out? When you see the naked, that you cover him and not hide yourself from your own flesh? Then your light shall break forth like the morning. Your healing shall spring forth speedily and your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of Yahweh shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and Yahweh will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger finger and speaking wickedness. If you extend your soul to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted soul, then your light shall dawn in the darkness and your darkness shall be as the noonday. Yahweh will guide you continually and satisfy your soul in drought and strengthen your bones. You shall be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Those from among you shall build the old waste places. You shall rise up, raise up the foundations of many generations. And you shall be called the repairer of the breach. The restorer of streets to dwell in. If you turn away your foot from the Sabbath from doing your own pleasure on my holy day, And call the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of Yahweh honorable, and shall honor him. Not doing your own ways, and not finding your own pleasure, nor speaking your own words. Then you shall delight yourself in Yahweh. And I will cause you to ride on the high hills of the earth, and feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father, the mouth of Yahweh has spoken. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word and then to its exposition. Please be seated. We will be focusing in this sermon on the last two verses there but there are some introductory thoughts that I'd like to share with you. Early in our marriage, with a growing family of infants, toddlers, and young children from whom we rarely took a break, my wife Debbie and I established something of a tradition. Our anniversary was the day to get away, to be away by ourselves, to have the delightful, delightful, Romantic time of going to Target and finding (laughs) turtlenecks to get the kids ready for winter. Sometimes we also had dinner alone together, but that wasn't very common. Hey, we're at Target. Must be our anniversary. That kind of became our theme. But through all these uh, 28 years, what we've wanted most to do on our anniversaries was just to spend time enjoying each other. In the early years, getting to know each other better, and as time went on, remembering together the blessings of our past. Our anniversaries could have been more delightful had we been able, every year, to clear everything else off our schedules and devote the time entirely to each other. Some years we achieved that pretty well, but not many. Most of the time, other obligations crowded in on us, and some anniversaries were tarnished with unwanted intrusions. The fault has been mine. I should have carefully marked off each day and kept business and other concerns from encroaching on it. I should have dedicated myself to making the day thoroughly enjoyable for my beloved bride. In recent years, I've done better, but in the earlier years of our marriage, I often fell far short of that. Did you know that Old Testament law actually provided for something much like that? Not just one day in a year, but for every day through an entire year. And I'm not talking about the sabbatical year. Listen to Deuteronomy 24, 5. When a man has taken a new wife, He shall not go out to war or be charged with any business. He shall be free at home one year and bring happiness to his wife whom he has taken. Think about that for a minute. The newlywed man is forbidden to go out to war and indeed no business obligations are to be laid upon him. He is to be at home with his bride for the sole purpose of bringing happiness to her. That is to be his focus for an entire year to make his bride happy. Wives, think back on your first year of marriage. Would you have appreciated if your groom had set aside all business and spent every day focused on making you happy? Whatever that meant. I tell you, in the first year of my marriage, I began a brand new job, and I was away from about 7 o'clock every morning to about 7 o'clock every evening, and my dear wife, in this brand new city to which we had just moved, found herself largely abandoned, and it was a terrible year for her. That wasn't the way the Lord designed things. But think, suppose that your husband had done all the dishes in that first year, or all the vacuuming, or mopping, or laundry, or all four of those, right? (laughs) Suppose he had made sure to spend time in prayer and reading the scriptures with you every morning and evening, and maybe even at noon, too. Or had simply sat down to listen to you for as long as you wanted to talk. (laughs) And listened carefully enough that when he said something in response, it was always pertinent and helpful. (laughs) Arising from genuine understanding and never, never from presuppositions. I don't mean epistemological presuppositions, but presumptions really. And never, Never once from self-defense. <laughs> Suppose he had realized that in order to bring you true happiness, he needed to work on his own relationship with Christ, since without maturity, he wouldn't be able to minister well to you. And so he had devoted a significant time every day to prayer and the scriptures and good Christian books on, on, on doctrine, on holy living, on marriage maybe even in preparation on child raising. Suppose he had paid careful attention to your wardrobe and jewelry and taken you out from time to time just to get you beautiful things. I hope I'm not causing discontent. (laughs) (laughs) Or suppose that he had encouraged you to go and see friends or family with or without him from time to time. Okay, maybe you're thinking, good grief, he'd drive me crazy. (laughs) (laughs) But think again, think again. Remember what the verse says. He's to focus on one thing, and that one thing is bringing happiness to you. That means he's going to learn what drives you crazy and steer clear of it. He's going to give you the time alone, the time with others in his absence, the time with others along with him that you need. He's not going to drive you crazy. He's going to drive you happy. So you're not allowed to brush this sermon illustration aside with that objection. By definition, he can't drive you crazy. Would you have welcomed such a first year of marriage, you wives? You young ladies not yet married. Would you welcome a first year of marriage like that? Wouldn't that be cool? And now, you husbands, think about it. Just suppose for a moment that you'd had the financial freedom to spend the whole first year of your marriage doing just one thing, making your bride happy. And suppose for a moment that you had been spiritually mature enough really to lose yourself in doing that, to to find nothing in life more delightful than making your wife happy do you think it might have made a difference for the for, for the rest of your marriage do you think making her happy every day might have made you a little more happy as well do you think it might have helped the two of you to to be better lovers better parents Better friends, not just to each other, but to other people in your church and in your neighborhood, even at work, later at work. Better able to share with other couples at church how to enjoy the blessings of God in marriage. I think we all know the answer. Such a first year of marriage could have made all the difference in the world. Now, I want you to think about an imaginary couple, George and Charlotte. Imagine for a moment that a month or two before their wedding, God had sent some very wealthy person to them, and he had said, George, Charlotte, I want to see your marriage get off to a good start. So here here is my signed and sworn promise, notarized right here, see, to pay all your expenses, not just for necessities, but for whatever you want to do that's godly and enjoyable for the first year and to ensure that George has a good job starting the first day after your first anniversary. George, all you have to do is take this promissory note and sign it and you'll have immediate use for a full year after, the, uh, after your wedding day of my bank account and credit cards. All I ask is that you spend that whole year making your wife happy. I understand it's pretty far-fetched. But go along with me here. Use your imagination. This man has just told George he's going to cover all his costs for the first year of the marriage, and he's set down only one condition. George has to commit to spending the entire year making Charlotte happy. Now, wouldn't you think it pretty strange if George responded, you know, I don't like that restriction. I wanna do my own thing, serve myself, make myself happy. Sure, I'll I'll take the money if you wanna give it to me, but it's oppressive and legalistic for you to insist that I spend the year making Charlotte happy. Or think back on the Israelite groom. He's about to marry the girl of his dreams and then somebody reminds him, hey, Shmuel, remember Deuteronomy 24.5, you aren't to go out to battle. Nobody can saddle you with any business for a whole year. You have to spend the whole first year just making Hannah happy. Do you think Shmuel would have responded, you can't be, you can't be serious. Forget it. You don't really think God would put the burden on me of spending a whole year relaxing with my wife and making her happy, do you? Hey, I want to go out to war. I want to march for hours every day in heat and dust and just be around other hot, sweaty, smelly, tired, grumbling men. I want to... I want to get into fights and get splattered with other men's blood and guts and itch and stink for days before I get a chance to wash. I want to get knocked out by clubs, have my arm broken, maybe get an arrow through my thigh. I want to pine away for home and long for Hannah but not be able to have her. And when I'm not away at war, I want to be wearing myself out, working 12-hour days, digging, planting, cultivating, harvesting, building fences and barns, carrying bundles of sheaves, to market, and I want to get killed in battle before I ever get a chance to come back and raise a family. (laughs) Is that how you think Shmuel would have responded? (laughs) Of course not. That law in Deuteronomy 24, 5 offered newlyweds the chance of a lifetime to start their marriages off with consummate joy and happiness. And no bride and groom in their right minds would have balked at it Some might have had a hard time making it work out financially, although I bet the common practice of a bride's parents giving the couple a large gift at the start of the marriage helped. But however difficult it might have been for them to make it happen, I can't imagine a couple's having turned down the opportunity and protested that that law was oppressive. But my brothers and sisters, Many of us Christians today do essentially that all our lives. We look at one of God's laws given us for our great blessing and happiness and say, I don't like it, it's oppressive, it's legalistic, I don't wanna live that way. In fact, I'm gonna do everything I can to figure out some way to show that the law doesn't apply to me. After all, it was given to the people of Israel, and Israel's not around anymore. Uh, Surely it must have been part of the ceremonial law, given to Israel as a church under age. The ceremonial law was fulfilled in Christ. The church has come of age, so that law no longer binds anybody. Or maybe it was part of the judicial law, given to Israel as a body politic, and the church isn't a body politic anymore, so that law doesn't bind anybody. I just can't handle the the notion of having to take a bunch of time off from work to celebrate and make my wife and children happy. I'm not talking anymore about Deuteronomy 24.5 and the law requiring a groom to stay home with his wife and make her happy for a year. I'm talking about what God says in Isaiah 58, 13 and 14. If you turn your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, And call the Sabbath a delight. The holy day of Yahweh, honorable. And shall honor him, not doing your own ways, nor finding your own pleasure, nor speaking your own words. Then you shall delight yourself in Yahweh. And I will cause you to ride on the high hills of the earth and feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father. The mouth of Yahweh has spoken. Can you doubt his word? Both laws make restrictions, and both contain the former implicitly and this one explicitly, Promises of great blessings to those who obey them. Let's let's look at Isaiah 58, 13, and 14 backward, starting at its end. It ends with, the mouth of Yahweh has spoken. That's a guarantee. Remember the rich man in my illustration who gave George the promissory note, signed and sworn and notarized? Notarized. That's what this closing statement does. It's God's signature at the end of this marvelous promise, sworn and sealed. God keeps all his promises. Can you doubt what he promises here? And what does God promise to those to whom he gives this promissory note? He promises that they will delight in him, and he will cause them to ride on the high hills of the earth and feed on the heritage of Jacob. What is it? What is it to delight in the Lord? The Hebrew verb means to be soft, delicate, or dainty. In the form used here, it means to take even exquisite delight in something or someone. The word is associated with intensity or great magnitude of pleasure this isn't just fleeting pleasure it's not shallow pleasure no this is deep and intense and abiding pleasure for instance in isaiah 13:22 palaces palaces which are always opulent magnificent places are called delightful and in the passage we're looking at in verse 13 Yahweh tells his people to call the Sabbath a delight using the same adjective in, uh, that we find here. In Isaiah sixty-six eleven. the word denotes the delight a baby finds in the satisfaction and consolation of nursing at its mother's breast. That's the idea. The exact form of the verb in Isaiah 58, 14 is is an intensive middle, indicating intense action upon oneself. We might translate it, take to yourself intense delight in Yahweh. Take to yourself. God actually tells us to take to ourselves intense delight in Yahweh. It's the same verb we find in Psalm 37, 4, that familiar voice that says, Delight yourself in Yahweh, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Do you find your desires often go unfulfilled? Our promise is that as we delight ourselves in the Lord, he gives us the desires of our hearts. Maybe we need to look at what we're delighting in. To delight in the Lord, then, is is to experience intense, exquisite pleasure, happiness, and joy because of one's communion with him. As Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary President Joey Piper puts it, to take exquisite pleasure in the Lord is to be overwhelmed by his beauty and glory that are revealed in his attributes and work. To delight in God is to Enjoy special communion and fellowship with him, responding with gratitude and delight as he manifests his his love to you. This communion is captured in the Song of Solomon by the emblem of a luxuriant garden adorned with beautiful foliage where God meets with you. Like the pleasure young lovers feel when they get together for the first time after a long separation, such is the pleasure we're told God will give to those who use his Sabbath as he directs. God likens delighting Him in, in him to our riding on the high hills of the earth and being fed with the heritage of Jacob. Well, it can be a little difficult for us so far removed in time and culture and geography from ancient Israel to grasp the significance of riding on the high hills of the earth But it harkens back to how God in Deuteronomy 32, verses 13 and 14, described what he did when he delivered Israel from Egypt. He made him ride in the heights of the earth that he might eat the produce of the fields. He made him to draw honey from the rock and oil from the flinty rock, curds from the cattle and milk from the flock with fat of lambs and rams of the breed of Bashan and goats with the choicest wheat. And you drank Listen to this language. And you drank wine, the blood of grapes. In Deuteronomy thirty-three twenty-nine, 29, we learn a little more of what was entailed in Israel's riding in the heights of the earth. Happy are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by Yahweh, the shield of your help and the sword of your majesty. Your enemies shall submit to you and you shall tread down their high places. This was the language of victory. Victory over the enemies of God, the destruction of their pagan worship with all its abominations, and their submission to the rule of God. By borrowing that language in his promise to those who honored his Sabbath and made it his delight and delighted in him, God implied that observing the Sabbath is part of how we contribute to the expansion and intensification of his kingdom. In the Lord's Prayer, we pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as in heaven. When we keep the Sabbath holy, not only are we submitting to God's kingdom and doing his will, but the victory God assures us includes increasing submission to his kingdom and will by his enemies. That is, our Sabbath observance can be and should be linked to evangelism. When unbelieving neighbors, friends, and co-workers see Christians joyfully delighting in the Sabbath, they may, in curiosity and even in jealousy, begin asking questions that open the door for gospel witness. That's exactly what happened when my daughter Susan's non-Christian friends witnessed her consistent honoring of the Lord's Day during her college years by refraining from her college studies, even when there was a big exam on Monday. And taking the whole day instead for for corporate worship, for rest, for joyful feasting with fellow believers, and for relaxing, reading her Bible and other good Christian books. Her friends saw that and they, they just couldn't understand it. But then they started seeing that in her life, there was a regular rhythm of rest that relieved her of tension all week long. And that led to opportunities for her to tell the gospel to others, and some believed. I suppose it can also be a little strange for us to think of feeding on the heritage of Jacob. The heritage of Jacob? You mean the promised land? I don't have a plot of land in Israel, and I don't don't know many Christians who do. But that's not the point at all. Hebrews 11 explains that the real hope of all the Old Testament saints, wasn't for a strip of land, arid desert land on the eastern shore of the Mediterranean. No, no. They desired a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. What they really had their hearts set on was the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, where the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. The heritage of Jacob is God himself. And God himself is what God promises that those who make the Sabbath their delight and keep it holy will feed upon. How can one be assured that we'll experience the delight that God promises here? Well, verse 13 sets forth some conditions. Sets them forth in paired requirements and prohibitions. Now, the moment we hear of prohibitions, the temptation in our day that values human freedom above everything else is to be resentful we don't like prohibitions we want to be unrestricted but think back to Deuteronomy 25 4 which prohibited a young a, a, a new groom from going to war or even being burdened down with any business for a year so that he could put all his effort into making his new wife happy who wouldn't welcome such a prohibition It was really like an invulnerable fortress keeping distractions from interfering with the start of that marriage. It didn't deprive the bride and groom of anything. It protected them. Well, that's how we should see the prohibitions God imposes on our use of the Sabbath. If you turn your foot from the Sabbath from doing your pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight, The holy day of Yahweh, honorable, and shall honor him, not doing your own ways, nor finding your own pleasure, nor speaking your own words, then you shall take to yourself exquisite delight in Yahweh. The prohibitions can be summed up as setting aside our own ways and pleasures, and even our own words on the Sabbath, and the requirements can be summed up as. Making the Sabbath a holy day, a day set aside from all other days, a day in which more than any other day, we honor the Lord with all our attention. Think back again to the groom who was set aside a whole year for for making his bride happy. Do you think she'd feel honored by his doing that? You know she would. Undivided attention is one of the greatest honors we can give to anyone. In the Old Testament, Pipa points out, God sanctified places, garments, altars, and other such things so that they might be dedicated, wholly focused on his worship. So making the Sabbath a holy day means making it a day on which one refrains from activities common to all the other six days of the week and dedicates it to the worship of God so as to honor the Lord by our undivided attention to his day. To do things on the Sabbath that are common to other days when they aren't works of either necessity or, or mercy is to profane it, to make it unholy. That is, to make it common, to make it a common day. Many people find the instruction to turn from doing their pleasure on the Sabbath confusing. How can the Sabbath be such a delight if on it I'm not allowed to do my pleasure? Well, the confusion is understandable but it's actually pretty easily solved. God isn't against doing things from which we get pleasure so long as they don't violate his moral will expressed in the 10 Commandments. Of course, if we get pleasure from lying, cheating, stealing, committing adultery or worshiping false gods, he forbids that. But if we get pleasure from making beautiful music or running or swimming or painting or managing a business well or building fine furniture or cabinetry or cultivating a farm from which we can harvest an abundant crop, those and uh, uncountable other things are are all fine. He encourages us to do such things and enjoy them. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. He tells us in Ecclesiastes 9.10. God isn't opposed to our doing things in which we take pleasure, but he wants us to set aside the Sabbath for particular pleasures. Pleasures we don't so easily obtain on the other six days of the week because our daily responsibilities distract us from these. Think back once more to the groom whom God restricted in Deuteronomy 25.4. Now, because he's made in God's image to be creative and productive as God is and to fight evil and protect the innocent as God does, that young groom should actually get pleasure from pursuing his vocation and even going to war if necessary to protect God's people from enemies. But that first year of marriage was to be set aside. In that year, he wasn't to pursue those other pleasures. He was to concentrate on just that one pleasure of making his wife happy. Now, do you think a new husband who did that, who really succeeded in making his wife happy all through that year, would himself go through the year moping around thinking, boy, did I ever get the shaft? (laughs) I can't go off to war, and so on. No, of course not. You and I both know that if he spent that year making her happy, he would be happy too. If rather than pursuing his own pleasure, he pursued her pleasure, his pleasure would come too. It's the spiritual lesson we learn from Jesus when he says, whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it, will save it. That's the way it is here in Isaiah 58. Isaiah 58. God's prohibition of pursuing our own pleasures on the Sabbath doesn't mean the Sabbath becomes a dreary, sad, dark day. It doesn't mean God doesn't want us to have pleasure. It means he wants it to become the day of our greatest pleasure because in it we find the greatest delight in the object of our greatest worship and love and gratitude. As Asaph put it in Psalm 73, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth I desire besides you. God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. On the Sabbath we avoid the activities, even the pleasures, common to the other six days of the week, not because they're bad in themselves and not because we're ascetics who think somehow we get closer to God by torturing ourselves, but because we don't want them, good as they are, interfering with our drawing nearer to God and experiencing that exquisite delight that comes from knowing him better and better and better and better, week in and week out For a lifetime. All this should make it clear why. If we are to abide by the instructions here in Isaiah 58. 13 and 14. We mustn't fall into the trap of thinking it's enough. Just to set aside an hour or two on Sunday mornings for worship. Neither in the fourth commandment nor here in Isaiah 58. Do we encounter the word morning or evening or hour. What we are told to sanctify. To keep holy, to set apart from all other days, is the Sabbath day. Through the whole day, we set aside all our ordinary pleasures, not to deprive ourselves, but to dive into the deepest, purest, greatest pleasure there is. The pleasure of knowing, loving, enjoying, taking delight in, worshiping, adoring, praising, and communing with our blessed King and Savior. As the Jews celebrated the Sabbath on the last day of the week, looking back at God's finished creation and their deliverance from Egypt being created as a new nation and forward at the promised Messiah and eternal rest to come, so we celebrate the Sabbath on the first day of the week, looking back on the finished work of Christ on the cross, crowned by his resurrection, by which he accomplished his new creation, the church, and looking forward at Christ's return and our entry into that eternal rest in the new heaven and new earth. Now let me address one last matter before I conclude. Is the Sabbath commandment restricted to the old covenant? Wasn't it a sign of God's special covenant with Israel? And doesn't that mean it doesn't obligate anyone now? Joey Piper answers this objection well, I think, in his book, The Lord's Day. We do not use this line of reasoning with the wonderful things the Old Testament says about marriage or the place of our children in the covenant. Why use it here? The moral and spiritual commands as well as many of the Old Testament promises apply to us and we may not dismiss a threat or promise simply because it's found in the Old Testament. Among other things, we consider the context of the promise when seeking to determine how it applies. This entire section of Isaiah Refers ultimately to Jesus Christ and to the covenant people. The section begins with the famous promise of the suffering servant in Isaiah chapter 53. In chapter 54, the prophet assures the church of its worldwide outreach. In chapter 55, he calls sinners to repentance. All of this material refers to the New Testament era. In chapter 56, God begins to relate the Sabbath to the New Testament people. He says in verses two through five, how blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who takes hold of it, who keeps from profaning the Sabbath and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to Yahweh say, Yahweh will surely separate me from this people. Neither let the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says Yahweh to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, and choose what pleases me, and hold fast my covenant, to them I will give in my house and within my walls a memorial. Now how do we know that this applies to the New Testament era? Because only in the gospel era can a eunuch enjoy the privileges promised here. Deuteronomy 23.1 declares that a eunuch may not enter the house of the Lord. Here, anticipating the reign of Christ, God promises even the eunuch that he shall receive a great memorial name in the house of the Lord. The prophet is relating Sabbath-keeping expressly, explicitly, to the days of the new covenant and the glories of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes. There were aspects of the weekly Sabbath that were specially restricted to Israel's covenantal relationship with God as a church under age and a body politic. And those aspects, as Westminster Confession 19 tells us, are, are fulfilled and done away with. But the Sabbath commandment itself, because it is rooted in both creation and the redeeming work of Christ, both of which reach far beyond Israel, applies to all people, everywhere, at all times, While it had ceremonial and civil elements that have passed away, its moral element abides forever. That non-Christians ignore it as 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 they do many others of God's command doesn't excuse us from observing it. To everyone who sincerely honors the Sabbath day, who turns from his own pleasures and makes the Sabbath his delight, The Lord promises that he will take to himself exquisite delight, exquisite delight. Is there anything lacking in my delight in the Lord that makes it hard for me to say I have exquisite delight in the Lord? God promises that if I will honor the Sabbath, turn from my pleasures, and make the Sabbath my delight, He will give me exquisite delight in himself. And I will even experience victory over spiritual enemies, whether those enemies are sin within or opponents without. Sabbath keeping, says Joey Piper, is thus a means of grace that will help you die to sin and grow in holiness. Let me set before you in closing a challenge from Dr. Piper. Is it not possible, he asks, that one reason for the spiritual weakness of the church is her failure to honor God on the Lord's day? Is it not possible that one reason our churches are not more effective in reaching the lost is because we are not practicing the Sabbath keeping that brings us victory? Could this be true of us as individuals as well? Is it not possible that you continue to fall under the dominion of some particular sin because you've refused to sanctify the Lord's day in your heart? We lack victory because we have failed to recognize and use one of the God-given means of victory while Those who keep the Sabbath have victory. Hear afresh these wonderful words of our Lord that contain not only prohibition, not only restriction, not only requirement, but also a blessed promise. If you, if you turn away your foot from the Sabbath from doing your pleasure on my holy day and you keep or call the Sabbath a delight the holy day of Yahweh honorable and shall honor him not doing your own ways nor finding your own pleasure nor speaking your own words Then, then, you shall, you shall delight yourself in Yahweh. And I will cause you to ride on the high hills of the earth and feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father. And how sure can you be of that? The mouth of Yahweh has spoken. Let's pray. Oh, Father. You have offered us such riches. You have offered us yourself. And how many times, how many times have we turned from that offer? Have we abandoned it? Because we thought that we were seeking our own pleasures. And what we really was, knew were doing was starving ourselves. Father, we we praise you. We thank you for your forgiveness. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you that despite all of our turning from you, you, you keep giving yourself to us. But we ask you also, Father, to work in our hearts that new hunger for you, that new yearning and longing for deep communion with you that would lead to our joyfully setting aside all of our other pleasures on the Lord's day and spending that whole day celebrating, celebrating your goodness, tasting and seeing that the Lord is good, beholding the beauty of the Lord, doing so in the blessed fellowship of our brothers and sisters in Christ enjoying your good gifts of food as you call us together to feast with you Father use this text and use use such exposition of it as I have given I pray to bring great joy into all our lives. And this I do pray in the blessed name of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is Sabbath to us. Amen.